38. All right, we have started the Joseph account. <clears throat> and we're seeing, basically, the story is about God's promise to Abraham being worked out in his covenant people. That is so fundamental to understand. Because ultimately, although you see great morality by Joseph, and you see, and you see almost, uh, and you see great sin as well, but ultimately, this is not a this is not a a story of morality. This is a story about how God is keeping His covenant promises. It's not a hero story, and we're going to see that. But here today, we're going to talk about what seems to be just an interruption in the story of Joseph. And that begins in Genesis 38 with Judah. Read with me verses 1 through 4. And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and he called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she was born, when he was born. Oh, when she was born. So this passage brings Judah into focus. Judah is the brother of Joseph who we just talked about last week. And Judah is the one who suggested to sell Joseph into slavery. And now the narrative is going to focus on Judah for chapter 38. Um, this account that I'm about to talk about certainly qualifies as a sordid affair. If anyone has ever read Genesis 38, you know what's coming. Um, so this is not, so just be warned. This is not a, a pleasant narrative. You have unfamiliar customs, sexual deviancy, prostitution, hypocrisy, and this is smack dab in the middle of the Joseph account. Um, and it's so interesting that the Joseph narrative could just skip Genesis 38 entirely, and it would seem very smooth. I mean, nothing would be lost if you just took this chapter out of the Bible, seemingly. Seemingly. So the account of Judah seems just like a disruption in the story. <coughs> so the question I'm asking you today is why is this included in the account of Joseph's life? <coughs> there are different levels of answers to that. But I would like to ask and answer that question today. Why is a seeming interruption included in the Joseph narrative? Well, we notice first that Judah does something which was explicitly forbidden by his fathers. In verse 2, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, Abraham did not want 
any of his sons to marry a Canaanite woman. In fact, he made his servants swear to not get a Canaanite woman for his son. He said to his servants, Swear by the Lord, in Genesis 24, verse 3, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So swear you won't bring my son, a Canaanite woman, he says to his servant. Isaac gives the same exhortation to Jacob. Isaac called Jacob, Genesis 28 verse 1, and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it was very clear that their task was to keep the seed pure. Keep the promise line pure. The purity of the promised seed is at stake here. But Judah moves out of the promised territory. He goes south into Canaanite territory, which is at that time Canaanite territory. It would be later where the tribe of Judah was allotted. But at this point, it's Canaanite territory. And Judah marries a Canaanite woman and has Canaanite children with her. So Judah is moving out of the promised cocoon and into the realm of what is forbidden. We see the forbiddenness of what Judah has done, not only in the actions he took, but in the language of verse 2. In verse 2, there Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. When someone sees and takes in Genesis, it means trouble. Because in Genesis 6 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any as they chose. So there's a seeing and a taking that introduces a problem in redemptive history in the book of Genesis. Similarly, sin entered into humanity by a seeing and taking. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So it's the seeing and taking that's the problem. There's a problem here of seeing and taking, and great breaches in redemptive history come about when persons, or Elohim, see and take for themselves. Sin entered humanity through a seeing and taken, taking. The sons of God were able to incarnate themselves in the human race through the seeing and taking. And here Judah is introducing a Canaanite woman into the promised line because he saw and took what was forbidden. So, Judah has done what is explicitly forbidden by the fathers. And he has seen and taken, introducing Canaanite blood into the promised line. 
I think we learn from just that phrase, seeing and taking, how Satan works among many of us. The lust of the eyes is very strong for many of us. And what Satan will do is he will appeal to what is weakest in you. Whether it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. But very interestingly, for many it's the lust of the eyes that introduce temptation. And temptation takes over the person. So, it's almost like, you know, this, the highest truths are the simplest truths. Well, I used to sing a song, I'm sure some of you did too, or my mother did. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that one? Yeah. It's so true. It's so true because the eyes are like the lamp of the body. They, they not only demonstrate what a person is, but they let in. They let in what is seen. So be, care, be very careful with what your eyes are looking at, because you will be tempted to see and take what is forbidden. Not surprisingly then, Judah's line, Judah's family line becomes fraught with the consequences of sin. Just absolutely embroiled in sin in this passage. Read with me, would you, starting at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her, her name was Tamar. <coughs> but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, we're not told what sin Ur did. We're just not given that information. But we are told that the Lord put uh, Ur to death, and leaving Tamar widowed, by the way. Leaving Tamar widowed. This is a hard thing. This is a discipline of the Lord. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. There's that Old Testament God again, just being cruel, that's why I like the Jesus God of the New Testament, because he's nice. Well, first of all, I, every time this kind of thing comes up, I just want to set the record straight. First of all, the God of the Old Testament is defined as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he is a God of mercy and grace. Yet at the same time, his arm of discipline is very hard. Very hard. And here he kills, puts Ur to death for wickedness, which we're not told. Even to the point where the holiness of God, which is so holy, smote someone who actually took out their hand to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant when it was falling. So there's a holiness factor here. Too. Now, if you're tempted to think that this is the God of the Old Testament and not the New Testament, then you just have not read or do not remember some of the things you've read from the New Testament. For when Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, the Lord put them to death. Actually, there's a very peculiar passage, but... It's there in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says that the neglecting of the body during the Lord's Supper 
is why many of you are sick, weakly, and some have even died among you. That's why when I give the Lord's Supper, or when a pastor gives the Lord's Supper, it's appropriate to protect the table. Put a fence around the table, it's called, because this is a family meal, and it's not for those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. We believe that you may be putting yourselves in grave danger if you do so. So that passage is there, and we need to acknowledge it. So, um, where were we? So, this is not just an Old Testament God, New Testament God thing. We see this, this, the discipline of the Lord is very hard sometimes. Nevertheless, we don't know what Ur did. But he was put to death and left Tamar widowed. In verse 9, then, we read the account of Onan, Judah's other son. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for her brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. What is happening here is the custom of what's called Leverite marriage, or Leverite marriage. If a man died and left his wife childless, then it is the brother's responsibility to have intercourse with that woman who has been left widowed in order to carry on the name of the brother. This actually became enshrined in the Old Testament law, and you can see that in Deuteronomy 25.5. I'll just read that to you. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married uh, outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife to perform the duty of a husband, uh, of a husband's brother to her. So, if a woman was left um, widowed and childless, it was the brother's responsibility to go in, have intercourse with the woman, so as to raise up children for the widow. This was also practical. It's not just about names. It had, it had practicality to it. Um, because when this woman was old, then she would have children who could provide and look out for her as well. So this is about raising up the name and providing for the widow. This is so far removed from our culture today that it's just, we can't even fully appreciate how this worked. We can't really wrap our minds. It seems so strange and bizarre. But this is how ancient... Um, Biblical religion was was done, and how the names of men were kept alive. Now, this was actually before the law was given, so there may, this may have represented an earlier form of the law, where Onan didn't necessarily have to marry uh, Tamar, but just go into Tamar to raise up seed. The problem, of course, as we read, is when Onan went into Tamar, he would waste his semen on the ground. So he was using Tamar to gratify himself. 
and not to actually perform the duty of a brother-in-law. And that is the sin of Onan. Where we don't know the sin of Ur, we do know the sin of Onan. Onan is not, he's pretending to perform the duty of a brother-in-law, but he is just using Tamar for sexual gratification. And the, the Hebrew lets us know that the Hebrew language and syntax lets us know that this is a continual thing that he was doing. So he's pretending to raise up offspring, but he's actually indulging himself, and the Lord puts him to death. So that leaves Tamar twice widowed now. And then Judah suspects at this point that Tamar is something like a bad omen. I mean, I gave her to one son, that son dies. I gave her another son, that son dies. Of course, he didn't know what, a what Onan was doing, but we do. Um, and so he refuses to give her the third son, which was his, actually his responsibility as the chieftain of the tribe. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. The chief problem here is that I know this is a this is not a kind of story that you're used to. This is not this is not a normal thing to be talking about. But this is just the raw and real history of God's people. No punches are pulled here. Do you do you notice the Bible is not trying to not trying to present itself as a pristine history? of a holy people. It is certainly not that. It is. It has its ups, it has its downs. It is not a history necessarily of wretchedness, of righteousness, but of wretchedness. So Tamar is left childless, and the chief sin of Judah is that he withholds from her what she, he should have given to her, leaving her not only childless, but vulnerable. So as time passed, it became very clear that uh, Judah was not going to fulfill his responsibility. He was not actually going to give Tamar his youngest son. He just wanted to let time pass, and she kind of forgetting about it, and whatever happened to her was fine. So as the story progresses, we see that Judah does not keep his word, so Tamar looks to take matters into her own hands. Read with me. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah, to, sh to sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was old, your Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So, since Judah had not kept his promises, Tamar is going to seek to get children from Judah another way. If it's not by persuasion 
or by Judah fulfilling his responsibility. It's going to be through deception. And what she does is she poses as a prostitute and puts herself in the way of Judah. Judah being somebody who sees and takes what he wants, takes the bait here in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that, I, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. So what you want is security. So this is a business transaction. Judah says, let me, let me sleep with you. Um, Tamar says, what will you pay me? I'll pay you a goat. And she says, well, give me security. Before you send that goat, then I'll give you the, I'll give you the security back. And what does he give her? He gives her a signet cord so give me your signet cord, your staff in your hand. Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So the signet cord, the staff, and... The signet, the cord, and the staff are all markers of one's identity. A signet could have been a signet ring that created an impression on wax, or it could have been more of a cylinder, a sin, sin, what is that word? Cylinder. A cylinder that you roll and creates an impression on wax. The cord would have held the signet, and the staff usually was personalized at this time. So this would have been like giving your ID your credit cards and your wallet to a prostitute before she got back her money. Well, Judah goes in, she copulates, and after she, he is done, Tamar disappears. Then we read, When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Enum at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of that place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. So... There it is. So, so Judah, the one who is called to carry on the seed of Abraham, is having intercourse with a woman whom he believes is a cult prostitute, it seems. While Joseph is fleeing Egypt, fleeing temptation in Egypt at the same time that this is happening, Judah is having intercourse with prostitutes. So you see a character comparison here lining up. 
Not only that is is was he having intercourse with a prostitute, but it seems that he believed it was a cult prostitute. And the cult prostitute during these times was was a way that worship was done by pagans. The cult prostitute would be usually in a temple or perhaps roaming around. And this is a way of offering worship to the gods. You would go in and have intercourse with the prod. The men would go in and have intercourse with prostitutes. And this, this was supposed to promote fertility. <clears throat> and the gods were supposed to answer that sexual plea. Is that not wicked? Is that not perverse? If that wasn't bad enough, down the line of Israel, they would not only... Israel itself, Israel itself, would not only adopt cult prostitution after the kingdom splits, but they would adopt male cult prostitution. So it's not only prostitution, it's homosexual male cult prostitution. And so that is one of the reasons why Israel was judged. So this is, the, this is the perversity that Israel took on in their later years. And you see that foreshadowed here in one of the lives of their forefathers. So this is a very wretched story. I don't see a line of holy men leading up to the Messiah. I don't see somebody shaping a narrative to fit with the other ancient Near Eastern hero stories. I see a very raw and real account of a very sinful and perverse people. Yet, I see God working in the midst of these things. As time goes on, three months down the road, Judah comes face to face with his sin. We read in verse 24. After three months, three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. So you see Judah's hypocrisy on full display. Because he's the one who actually engaged her in the first place. And we know that it is, she conceived by Judah. It's Judah's baby in Tamar's womb. One uh, commentator said, Under Old Testament law, if Tamar was culpable, so was her partner. Consequently, if he but realized it, Judah is sentencing her to death, Judas, Judah, in sentencing her to death, has also condemned himself to the same fate. I, and I think it's very, this is human nature, that very often we are very quick to point out the sin of others, and we are very often willfully blind to our own sin. And that is why Jesus says, remove the plank from your own eye first. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't condemn these kinds of things. We should. But there's a look in to ourselves before we look out first. 
we should judge immorality. You should judge sin and wickedness. Very often, Jesus said, people think that Jesus said, don't judge. You know, I'm not judging. And they feel, feel like that's what they're answering Jesus' call. That is not the point at all. The point is, if when you judge, make sure that you yourself are pure. And then, once you remove the plank from your own eye, then Jesus said, then you are able to give proper judgment. So, here's Judah. Hypocrisy on full display. Tamar is pregnant. Her belly is starting to show. But everyone knows in the tribe she doesn't have a husband. Both of her husbands are dead. Therefore, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah says, let her be burned at the stake. This is, this is just the rankest of hypocrisy. But then she comes out. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom she, and she said, "By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant." And she said, "Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, the ID, the credit card and the wallet." <laughs> now, Judah is now confronted with his sin, and he is brought to the point. Verse 26, where it says, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. That is an unsatisfactory conclusion, I know. But let me talk about it for a minute. Um, we do see that Judah is brought to a point of repentance here. Um, I was reading John Calvin, and Calvin made an obvious but astute observation. He said, Judah's honesty in, is seen in the fact that he could have lied. He could have just denied it. And said, see, she's not only a, a prostitute, but she also stole my, my signet and my cord and my staff. She's not only immoral, but she's a thief. Have her burned to death. But he didn't do that. He was brought to a point of repentance, it seems. She, he doesn't say, see, she stole my stuff, but he... But look, she is more righteous than I. Let me just read to you what Calvin says, because I think it's helpful. Calvin says that Judah, that Judah immediately acknowledges his fault is a proof of his honesty. For we see with how many fallacies nearly all are wont to cover their sins until they are dragged to the light, and all means of denying that fault have failed. So he didn't need to be dragged. The truth didn't need to be dragged out of him, Calvin's saying. Here, though, no one is present who could exhort a confession or force or threats. Judah voluntarily stoops to make one and takes the greater share of the blame to himself. So there seems to be 
some repentance here. Some repentance. But he's a chieftain of the tribe. And so his underlings don't call for his death either. And he doesn't certainly says, well, burn me at the stake too. The only resolution we're given. I was telling Nitty about this too. It doesn't seem like a resolution. The resolution is that he acknowledges, yeah, I should have given her my son, Shayla. That's That would have been the right thing to do. And he did not know her anymore. That's the resolution. Well, the, what, what again, what I'm seeing here is not a hero's story. Neatly packaged together with a triumphant victory or, or some kind of gotcha at the end. or, or There was definitely a gotcha, but... N- not not some kind of um, carefully shaped narrative. I see a raw and real accounting of Israel's history. This is not a hero story. It's a wretched story. You look to Tamar. Granted, you see a woman who was not treated justly. But you also see a woman who was prostituting herself to her father-in-law... And that hardly makes her a hero. And I find it very bizarre that some people look at this story and point to Tamar as a hero. That's not a, that's not a hero. Then you look to Judah and you see a man who turns aside from God's family, sleeps with prostitutes, is full of hypocrisy, and then is brought to a point of repentance. So... Why is this included? Why is this story even included in the narrative? Well, first of all, if you were writing a history of the chosen line, you probably wouldn't choose to include these kinds of things. But God does. The God of Israel does. Um, Because this is not a story of a righteous line. This is a story of God's promises. And you have to understand that this is a story about a promise, covenant-keeping God that is supposed to tell us something about the nature of God. When he makes a covenant, like he did with Abraham, when he makes a promise, he will keep them. He will keep the promise. And our joy is to be on this side of the cross, trusting a God who we've seen keeps his promises in spite of of human sin in debauchery. In the ancient times, they would have hero stories like Hercules. They would be the one to do the thing and they were pristine and pure. This is not a story and you, you will fail to look in the Bible for a story of heroes, but a story of People whom God has empowered, in spite of their sin, to do what he has called them to do. You look to Samson, and you see a man who only had power because he had God, not in himself. He is no Hercules. He is a weak man without the power of God. You look at Gideon, who won the battle with only 300, but it was the Lord who worked through that. 
We're going to see in the story of Joseph that he prospers greatly. But it's only because, and this is the constant refrain, that the Lord was with him. So this account contributes to Scripture's insistence that humanity is sinful and fundamentally flawed, and it is not hiding anything. The Scripture is simply reporting a raw and real history of a wretched people who were redeemed by God. Secondly, we might ask, we might uh, note that through Judah's lust and Tamar's deception, that Canaanite blood has actually entered into the promised line. When the time of her labor has come, had come, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Tamar does bear children by Judah, and the promised line now has Canaanites in it. In other words, Gentiles have been grafted in to the promised line. And it shows only, and it's, Gentiles have been grafted into the promised line through the trespasses of the promised seed. Which I find very interesting when I look at this canonically in light of the New Testament because we read in Romans 11 that through the trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This only foreshadows the fact that God would bring in the Gentiles to salvation through the trespass of Israel and open up the door. Now, this was always God's plan. I'm not saying that the Gentiles were a contingency plan. And you see it foreshadowed in the lives of the fathers. Third thing I would like to note is this, is this account is actually included in a very important biography. A very important genealogy. Would you turn to Matthew 1 with me? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a new beginning. New beginning with Jesus Christ. But new beginnings with Jesus Christ also include the wretched history of sinners. And we read, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Isn't that interesting? Do you, it is well known, it is a well known historically established fact that Herod the Great actually published 
his genealogy and took out all the embarrassing names. Anyone who was embarrassment to the family, he took out the names and published a pristine genealogy of just the triumphant Romans. Well, this account in the Old Testament and the fact that it's included in Christ's biography lets you know what kind of God we have. Not one that removes embarrassing history, but includes wretchedness in his own genealogy. So, the thing I'm, I'm thinking then is that many of us have a very sordid past. Not one you would want to offer to the world. But does not Christ and does not God himself include the most wretched things in the history of his people? Aren't the most wretched things included? The most debauched things? I mean prostitution. I, don't even let me tell you about Lot's daughters. This time, don't... The, the male cult prostitute. We could go... The, Israel, the history of Israel is far worse than anything you, you did this week. So, it, it shows me that we have a God that actually includes our sordid history and redeems it and restores us and forgives us in Jesus Christ. It is, I just find it so, and not only Tamar, but Rahab is included in Jesus' genealogy, who was a Gentile prostitute. It is very clearly outlined that uh, David, the wife of Uriah, whom David actually killed so he could have sex with, with her, is included in this genealogy. It, he doesn't say Bathsheba. It's very interesting. It says intentionally the wife of Uriah so as to recall that David actually killed Uriah. So in a day and age where people were intentionally excluded from genealogies of royalty, we have the Son of God come down and intentionally included in his genealogy were women, Gentiles, prostitutes, murderers. And this is not a typical resume. And it shows you that God has written himself into an imperfect story in order to renovate that story. And that's why Jesus says, I have not call, come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Are you sick? then you need a physician. If you're not sick, then you don't. So Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance and to heal the sick. So, I want holiness in this church. But holiness begins with the fact that we are there is much wretchedness in our lives that we bring and we lay at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus Christ includes it, absorbs it, nails it to the cross, whatever that past may be, that thing you're thinking about right now, 
that is included, can be included in a story that is redeemed by Jesus Christ. God has come to save sinners, the chiefest of sinners. But he also renovates. He also renovates. And I find it very interesting that Judah, this seems to be a turning point for Judah. Because as we're going to see later, I don't necessarily have to turn there, but as we see later, Judah's, Judah's the one who said, Ah, let's sell Joseph into slavery and get money out of it and lie to our father and say a, a beast has killed Joseph. That was Judah. This is Judah leaving the promised people, sleeping with prostitutes, rank hypocrisy. That's Judah. But then we come to a point, and I think I see a glimmer of hope. We come to a point in Genesis 44, where Judah is actually going to suggest that he take the place of his brother instead of his brother having to stay in Egypt as a slave. He says to Joseph eventually, take me instead because it would hurt my father. It would bring his his hair down to, the, to Sheol. So I do see a hope of renovation for Judah, where he has become a lying, prostitute, indulging hypocrite. He does seem, after this point of repentance, to become somebody who actually stands in for a brother so as not to destroy his father. So I see even the embryonic hope of repentance unto renovation in this passage. So why, then, why is this story included in this narrative? I think it's included to show us that God's history of God's people is not a history, a pristine history, like the other ancient Near Eastern historical accounts. It's a raw and real history of real sinners that can be included in even the biography of Christ. So, sinner... Where what your sin in the past, no matter how great, no matter how great sinner, you have been called to forgiveness, to repentance, and grace will wash over you and redeem you. And while it is still called today, do not harden your hearts. The good hand of God will be upon you, and a wretched history will be turned into a righteous history. There will be pain at times because repentance is painful and embarrassing but you will be redeemed by the blood of the lamb amen, amen. let's close in a word of prayer and i'd like